Middle East crisis Netanyahu says Israeli soldiers will push into crowded area in Gaza. Andres R. Martinez Jonathan Rice Jonathan Rice Anushka Patil Alyssa J. Ruben Annie Carney Israel's prime minister said the military would, soon go into, to an area of Gaza near the border with Egypt where hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians have fled, something the United Nations has said would be catastrophic. Gazan health officials say that more than 27,000 people, many of them women and children, have been killed in Israel's bombardment and ground assault of Gaza since the Hamas-led attack on October 7. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said on Wednesday that Israeli troops had been directed to deploy in Rafah, near the southern border, and in camps in central Gaza, calling the areas Hamas's last remaining strongholds. Fighting in Rafah could worsen the humanitarian situation there, said Jens Lerka, a spokesman for the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. It could lead to a large-scale loss of civilian lives, he said on Tuesday. As the Israeli military has expanded its assault into southern cities such as Khan Yunus in recent months, more than half of Gaza's population, 1.4 million Palestinians, has fled to Rafah and struggled to find food and shelter, according to the main United Nations agency that aids Palestinian refugees in Gaza, known as UNRWA. Many Palestinians say that Rafah, or any part of Gaza, is no longer safe. After several moves in search of safety over the past four months, many have been left terrified and exhausted. https colon slash slash www.newyorktimes.com slash 2024 slash 02 slash 06 slash world slash Middle East slash Gaza dash Rafa dash shelter html. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony J. Blinken, who is on his fifth trip to the Middle East since October 7, said on Wednesday that it was especially important to protect civilians in Rafa. Israel has the responsibility, has the obligation, to do everything possible to ensure that civilians are protected and that they get the assistance they need in the course of this conflict, Mr. Blinken said during his visit to Israel. He made stops this week, in Saudi Arabia, Qatar and Egypt to support negotiations for a ceasefire that could free the remaining hostages held in Gaza and allow for more humanitarian aid to reach Palestinians. In an address on Wednesday to the UN General Assembly, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, called the situation in Gaza a festering wound on our collective conscience that threatens the entire region, and said he was especially alarmed by reports that the Israeli military intends to advance on Rafah. Such an action, he said, would only worsen what is already a humanitarian nightmare with untold regional consequences. It is time for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire and the immediate and unconditional release of all hostages, Mr. Guterres said. We can make clear what the law says. Under international humanitarian law, indiscriminate bombing of densely populated areas may amount to war crimes, Mr. Lerka told reporters in Geneva. More than half of Gaza's buildings were damaged or destroyed, Palestinian officials say, forcing millions of Palestinians to flee their homes and seek shelter elsewhere. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel dismissed a Hamas counterproposal for a ceasefire, saying on Wednesday that an Israeli victory in Gaza was within reach. There is no solution besides total victory, Mr. Netanyahu said during a news conference in Jerusalem, shortly after meeting with the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony J. Blinken, to discuss peace proposals. If Hamas survives in Gaza, it's only a matter of time until the next massacre. 
His comments appeared to dampen the wary hopes raised on Tuesday when U.S. and Qatari officials said the Hamas offer reflected potential progress. But Mr. Netanyahu, a canny negotiator, avoided specifics in his news conference, leaving things somewhat murky. In response to an offer negotiated by Qatari and Egyptian mediators, Hamas submitted a ceasefire proposal that outlined a path to the withdrawal of Israeli forces from the Gaza Strip and the release of Hamas's remaining hostages in exchange for some of thousands of Palestinians held in Israeli jails. Without specifying any details of the Hamas proposal, Mr. Netanyahu said surrender to the ludicrous demands of Hamas would neither free the more than 100 hostages still in Gaza nor restore Israel's security. Asked specifically whether Israel had formally rejected the framework, Mr. Netanyahu said, based on what they passed to us? From what I've seen so far, you, too, would have said no. Hamas's proposed deal would effectively end Israel's campaign in Gaza without toppling the group's rule there, analysts said. Mr. Netanyahu rejects any post-war arrangement that leaves Hamas in power, saying that it would allow the group to commit another assault on Israel similar to the October 7 attack that killed roughly 1,200 people. In a news conference in Beirut, Lebanon, a Hamas leader, Osama Hamdan, insisted that the group's proposal had been sincere, called on the United States to help halt the war, and said that a delegation from the group's leadership would travel to Cairo to pursue talks on the offer. Mr. Hamden stressed the urgency of the need for the war to stop, saying, No words or reports can describe the scale of the humanitarian catastrophe and the horror of the true tragedy left by the occupation in the Gaza Strip. Mr. Netanyahu said on Wednesday that Israel's leadership had directed the military to prepare to deploy in Rafah, at the southern border of Gaza, an area in which over 1.4 million Palestinians are believed to have crowded, seeking shelter, according to the United Nations. The military was also planning to operate in camps in the central Gaza Strip, he added, calling the areas Hamas's last remaining strongholds. Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary-General, pronounced himself especially alarmed on Wednesday by reports the Israeli military intended to focus next on Rafah, where displaced Palestinians have been squeezed in a desperate search for safety. Such an action would exponentially increase what is already a humanitarian nightmare with untold regional consequences, said Mr. Guterres, renewing his call for an immediate ceasefire and the release of hostages held in Gaza. The Israeli authorities have said 253 Israelis and foreign nationals were taken hostage on October 7. More than 100 have been released, mostly during a week-long ceasefire deal that began last November. Israeli officials say 136 remain in Gaza, including dozens who are believed to be dead. Fearing for the remaining hostages after four months of warfare, their families have stepped up their calls for the government to immediately reach a hostage deal with Hamas. Some have begun sleeping in a protest tent near the Prime Minister's Jerusalem residence. I address you, Mr. Netanyahu, everything is in your hands. You are the one who can, said Adina Moshe, 72, an Israeli hostage who was freed from Hamas captivity during the week-long ceasefire. I'm terribly afraid if you continue with this line of dismantling Hamas, no hostages will be left to release. Mr. Netanyahu said he had told Mr. Blinken that after Israel toppled Hamas, Israel would ensure that Gaza will be demilitarized forever. 
Israel would continue to operate in Gaza everywhere and any time in order to protect its security, so as to ensure that terrorism will not raise its head again, he added. Wide Assad contributed reporting. As mediators pursue a deal that would free hostages from Gaza in exchange for a pause in Israel's military campaign, a small group of relatives of Israeli hostages says that the government should keep waging war against Hamas even if it prolongs their loved ones' captivity. Family members of three hostages say that Israel should not agree to a deal with Hamas before the Israeli military has achieved its objectives in the war. They have formed a group, called Forum Tikva, or HOPE, to press their position. That puts them at odds with the Hostages and Missing Persons Families Forum, the main alliance of hostages families, which has forcefully urged Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government to give priority to the captives' release. One of Forum Tikva's founders is Svika Moore, whose son Eitan was working as a security guard at the Tribe of Nova Music Festival on October 7. Eitan became one of the roughly 240 civilians and soldiers Israel says were abducted to Gaza during the Hamas-led attack that day. Any negotiation with Hamas, Mr. Moore said, should come from a position of strength. I want my son back now but I want the Israeli government to make a good deal for all the people of Israel, not only for me," he said. His comments are a reflection of the emotionally charged debate in Israel around the fate of the hostages as the war in Gaza enters its fifth month. At least 30 of the roughly 136 remaining hostages captured October 7 are believed to be dead, according to an Israeli intelligence assessment. As hostages' families mount more aggressive protests to demand that Israel secure their release, a rift has deepened among Israelis about the cost the country is willing to absorb to have the remaining captives brought home. Mr. Moore said that Israel should not agree to any deal with Hamas that would involve the exchange of hostages for Palestinian prisoners he sees as dangerous, such as those convicted of involvement in attacks that killed Israelis. During a week-long ceasefire in November, about 100 hostages were exchanged for 240 Palestinians held in Israel, most of whom were young and had not been convicted of crimes. https colon slash slash www.newyorktimes.com slash 2023 slash 12 slash 01 slash world slash Middle East slash Palestinian dash prisoners dash release dash Gaza.html. Hamas delivered a plan this week to Qatari and Egyptian mediators that called for Israel to withdraw from Gaza, abide by a long-term ceasefire and exchange hostages for Palestinians detained in Israel. Mr. Netanyahu dismissed the Hamas offer as ludicrous on Wednesday and signaled that Israel would keep fighting in Gaza, saying that victory was within reach. Mr. Moore said that he and other members of Forum Tikva were willing to accept that their loved ones would remain captive longer if Israel did not make a deal soon. Like any other son who went to war, my son knows he might not come back, Mr. Moore said. But he's doing that to save the nation of Israel. Those views echo those of some senior members of Mr. Netanyahu's governing coalition, mostly from the far right. Officially, Forum Tikva says it has no political affiliation. Its director of strategy, Eitan Zeliger, said the group opposed protests intended to put pressure on the government to expedite the release of hostages. Mr. Netanyahu has said that protests demanding the hostages' immediate release only strengthen Hamas. A spokeswoman for the Hostages and Missing Persons Families Forum, Liat Belsamer, said there was no time to delay in making a deal. 
Releasing terrorist prisoners may be painful, but abandoning hostages is worse. Ms. Sommer said. Mr. Zelliger said that protesters were talking emotionally and not with Israel's broader security interests in mind. We want all the hostages, alive or dead, to come back home as soon as possible, Mr. Zelliger said. But not if that incontestably undermines the security of other Israelis. Israel has severely restricted humanitarian groups from delivering aid to northern Gaza, denying access to more than half of the planned aid missions to the region last month and delaying others to the point where missions had to be aborted, a United Nations official said on Wednesday. Andrea de Domenico, the leader of the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Aid in the Occupied Palestinian Territory, described layers of challenges in coordinating with Israeli officials that, he said, begin long before aid trucks set off toward the north. The region faced heavy bombardment and was entirely cut off for several weeks, exacerbating an already dire humanitarian crisis. In January, according to a report from the UN office, 34 of the 61 missions planned to areas north of Wadi Gaza, a strip of wetlands that curves across the Gaza Strip, were denied access by Israeli officials. During negotiations with Israeli authorities, Mr. De Domenico said in an interview, securing access to deliver fuel to hospitals was a constant fight and missions aimed to alleviate a dire lack of clean water and sanitation facilities were rejected even before being considered. On other missions, Israeli authorities have imposed reductions on the volume of assistance, such as the quantity of food, according to the report. The Israeli government agency that oversees policy and operations in the Palestinian territories, known as COGAT, did not immediately respond to a request for comment on the problems described by the report or to questions about Israeli restrictions on the volume of food assistance. The agency has previously denied that it is blocking aid to Gaza, and Israeli officials have accused Hamas of seizing some supplies. The UN aid office said that in nine aid missions planned for northern Gaza in January that Israeli officials had initially facilitated, convoys were impeded by Israeli checkpoints or by Israeli instructions to take roads that were impassable. Mr. De Domenico said that Israeli authorities were making guarantees to humanitarian groups about the safety of coordinated aid missions, but then failing to uphold their pledges. He said aid convoys in Gaza have repeatedly come under fire, and protocols that were negotiated to ensure the security of humanitarian workers at checkpoints between central and northern Gaza had been violated by Israeli forces countless times. Despite departing as early as dawn, some convoys have been unable to complete their delivery during daylight hours because of excessive delays at Israeli checkpoints, Mr. De Domenico said. They know that we do not want to have nighttime distributions, Mr. De Domenico said. You can't move in a war zone after dark when you cannot see where you are driving. Israeli officials facilitated 10 successful aid missions to the north, 16% of the planned total in January, according to the UN office, but even those face challenges. Most barely reached a few miles past the checkpoints, let alone into the far north, before they were surrounded by large crowds of starving people, Mr. De Domenico said. Palestinians in Gaza make up 80% of people facing famine or catastrophic hunger across the globe, according to UN experts. 
A U.S. special operations retaliatory drone strike in the Iraqi capital on Wednesday killed a senior leader of a militia that U.S. officials blame for recent attacks on American personnel, the Pentagon said, following up on President Biden's promise that the response to a slew of attacks by Shiite militias would continue. The Pentagon said the man was a leader of Qataibi Hezbollah, the militia that officials have said was responsible for the drone attack in Jordan last month that killed three American service members and injured more than 40. A U.S. official said that the strike was a dynamic hit on the militia commander, whom American intelligence officials had been tracking for some time. A second official said the United States reserved the right to strike other Shiite militia leaders and commanders. Videos from the scene showed the wreckage of a vehicle in a neighborhood of eastern Baghdad and a nearby fire. A senior Qataibi Hezbollah official and Iran's Revolutionary Guards Corps both said that two commanders had been killed in the strike. Witnesses said identification cards found nearby identified them as Arkan Alaliawi and Abu Bakr al-Saidi. In response, crowds gathered in the streets of Baghdad, chanting America is the devil. Major General Tassin Al-Khafaji, a spokesman for Iraq's security services, called the strike an aggression and said it violated Iraqi sovereignty and risked dangerous repercussions in the region. Wednesday's strike came after three quieter days in the Mideast, following American salvos on Friday and Saturday that began what Mr. Biden and his aides have said will be a sustained campaign of retaliation. On Monday, the Pentagon said that American warplanes had destroyed or severely damaged most of the Iranian and militia targets they had struck in Syria and Iraq on Friday. Major General Patrick S. Ryder, the Pentagon spokesman, said that more than 80 of some 85 targets in Syria and Iraq had been destroyed or rendered inoperable. The targets, he said, included command hubs, intelligence centers, depots for rockets, missiles and attack drones, as well as logistics and ammunition bunkers. Qataibi Hezbollah, based in Iraq, is considered a proxy of Iran, and the United States considers the group a terrorist organization. U.S. officials blame Iran and the militias aligned with it for what had become a near-daily barrage of rocket and drone attacks against U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria since the war between Hamas and Israel began on October 7. The Biden administration has sought to calibrate retaliatory airstrikes to deter such groups while avoiding a wider war. HTTPS colon slash slash www.newyorktimes.com slash 2023 slash 11 slash 29 slash a slash politics slash Israel dash Iran dash Gaza dash us dash attacks.html. But when a drone attack hit a remote base in Jordan on January 28, killing three American service members, administration officials said that a red line had been crossed and Mr. Biden promised a sustained campaign of retaliation. After that strike, Qataibi Hezbollah said it would halt attacks on American forces at the behest of the governments of Iraq and Iran, reflecting Iran's reluctance to directly confront the United States. But other groups involved in such attacks have not made similar commitments. The back-and-forth attacks in Syria, Iraq and Jordan, not to mention the tit-for-tat strikes that the United States and its allies have exchanged with the Iran-backed Houthis in Yemen, have edged the region closer to a broader conflict, even as the administration insists it does not want war with Iran. Instead, U.S. officials say they are focused on whittling away the militia's formidable arsenals and deterring additional attacks against U.S. troops as well as merchant ships in the Red Sea. 
but by targeting Qataibi Hezbollah commanders, the administration is sending a message to Iran and the militias that it backs that every American life taken will be met with a strong response, U.S. officials said. In January, the Pentagon said the U.S. had killed a leader of another Iraqi militia, Harakat al-Nujaba, who was involved in planning and carrying out attacks against American personnel in Iraq and Syria. National security experts and officials say privately that to truly degrade the capability of the Iran-backed militias, the United States would have to carry out a years-long campaign similar to the six-year effort to defeat the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Even then, the officials say, the militias, with Iran's backing, could probably survive longer than the Islamic State, which was pressured by the United States and Iran, and even Russia. The United States would also have to target many more senior leaders and commanders. Senate Democrats, pressing to advance a standalone bill to send tens of billions of dollars to Israel and Ukraine after Republicans blocked a compromise that would have paired the aid with stringent border security measures, promised a Thursday vote on the alternative. In a day of whiplash on Capitol Hill, Democrats on Wednesday pivoted to salvage the aid from becoming a casualty of former President Donald J. Trump's political campaign. But after hours of stalemate, Senator Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York and the majority leader, announced that senators needed more time to agree on how to move forward on that alternative, which Democrats and Republicans alike said they hoped would be successful. Mr. Schumer had hoped for a quick vote on Wednesday on what he called his Plan B for reviving the aid package after the border deal failed. But by Wednesday evening, action had stalled, as Senate Republicans slow-walked business on the floor while they regrouped. They held open a procedural vote for hours as they sought assurances from Democrats that if they voted to allow the stripped-down aid bill to move forward, they would be allowed to propose changes. After 7 p.m., Mr. Schumer said the Senate was recessing to give our Republican colleagues the night to figure themselves out. Despite the delay, there were glimmers of hope that the package of aid for Ukraine and Israel would eventually move forward. A bipartisan vote to advance the aid package would represent a remarkable turnaround after months of stalemate and likely put the measure on track for passage in the Senate within days. The measure would send $60.1 billion to Ukraine for its war against Russian aggression, $14.1 billion in security assistance for Israel and $10 billion in humanitarian aid for civilians of global crises, including Palestinians and Ukrainians. The effort to get the legislation back on track came after Republicans blocked a bill that paired the foreign aid with stringent border security measures they had demanded. That plan, hashed out over four months of painstaking bipartisan negotiations, hemorrhaged Republican support after Mr. Trump vocally opposed it. It failed on a 50-49 to 49 vote, falling short of the 60 votes it would have needed to advance, as all but four Republicans voted to reject it. Even if Democrats succeed in resurrecting the aid bill in the Senate, it still faces stiff headwinds in the Republican-led House, where right-wing lawmakers are opposed to sending additional assistance to Ukraine. Some have even threatened to oust Speaker Mike Johnson if he brings any bill to the floor that includes it. Mr. Johnson would not say Wednesday morning whether the House would take up the standalone national security bill if and when it passed the Senate. On Tuesday night, Republicans failed to push through a $17.6 billion bill to send military assistance only to Israel, a failure that Mr. Johnson tried to pin on Democrats.